0: 25. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created, when the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Now no shrub had yet appeared on the earth and no plant had yet sprung up. For the Lord God had not sent rain on the earth and there was no one to work the ground. But streams came up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground. Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east, in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. The Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river watering the garden flowed from Eden, From there, it was separated into four headwaters. The name of the first is the Pishon. It winds through the entire land of Havilah, where there is gold. The gold of that land is good. Aromatic resin and onyx are also there. The name of the second river is the Gion. It winds through the entire land of Cush. The name of the third river is the Tigris. It runs along the east side of Asher. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden, to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat of it, you will certainly die. The Lord God said, It is not good for man for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds in the sky. He brought them to the man, to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds in the sky and all the wild animals. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. That is why a man leaves his father and mother, and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame.
1: Thank you very much indeed, Tom. It's great to see you here uh, this afternoon at uh, Trinity Church, Islington. Welcome to you. My name is Jeremy and it's a pleasure to be able to join you. Um, you've, uh, uh, you've joined us, if it's your first time, on the second of a three-week series thinking about singleness, not because we're all single, although all of us were at one stage in our lives, and a number of us will be one day in all likelihood, but because single people matter to the local church and because singleness matters in God's big Plans. We're going to spend a second week then thinking about singleness, starting right at the beginning of the Bible and going almost all of the way to the end. But before we do that, if you're a praying person, then why don't you join me in prayer? Let's pray. Father God, thank you uh, that we can come to you as people who are looking for mercy, and we find in you the mercy that we need. You're an immensely merciful, gracious and kind God and so please father in your mercy address us through your words and we pray father that we would be those kind of people that listen and we ask these things in your name Amen. amen well if you were uh, around last week, then you'll know that we saw a principle from 1 Corinthians 7 from a part of the Bible in the New Testament. And, and, and this is the principle. Marriage is right, but singleness is better. That's how we summed it up from the book of 1 Corinthians. Marriage is right, but singleness is better. The thing is that it doesn't always feel better. One single person called Kate Wharton uh, put it like this in something that she, that she wrote. You'll see it up on the screen. When we have to fill in a form and tick a box marked single, when we have to pay a single room supplement for a holiday, when we steal ourselves to enter a party alone, and you could probably say entering church alone as well, I imagine, when we need someone to hold the other piece of flat pack furniture we're building, When we come home to an empty house, and there is no one to tell about the highs and lows of our day, at these times and at many others, being single can feel like the raw end of the deal. And for some people, it's even harder. Now there's a guy um, that I know called Ed Shaw, this is what he wrote in a book, painfully honest. He says, I have what I call kitchen floor moments. I call them that because they involve me sitting on my kitchen floor. But I'm not doing something useful like scrubbing it, although it could always benefit from that. Instead, I'm there crying. And the reason for my tears is the unhappiness that my experience of same-sex attraction often brings. The acute pain I sometimes feel as a result of not having a partner, sex, children, and the rest. A partner, sex, children, and the rest. Uh, From what my friends tell me, that seems like the cruelest bit, to be given such powerful feelings and then be told that you can't express or enjoy them could could seem like a, a particularly sadistic form of torture from the God who made you. I remember someone saying uh, to me who was single, it, it feels like it would be better if, if no one had any sexual feelings at all, no sexual desires, nothing to repress, nothing to feel guilty about, to struggle to control, and, until you get married. That would be a kind of, that would be useful. And, and, you, and you can see why. That, you know, on your wedding day, uh, there may be a, a, a doctor turns up and he gives you an injection. And, uh, and, and then your sexuality begins. And um, that's a great thing because you're married. But for everyone else, it just seems like an inconvenience. Have you ever thought that? How much better would it be as a single person not to have a sexuality to battle with? Well, it turns, out that the Bible, it turns out from the Bible that every single one of us has a sexuality, have, have sexual reasons for, have sexual feelings for a reason that goes beyond a human physical relationship. And we're going to think about three questions this afternoon that will help us to understand that. And the first is simply this, why, according to the Bible, do I have a sexuality? Okay, we're going to start right from the beginning. Why, according to the Bible, do I have a sexuality? We're all sexual beings. You see, when, when you go right back to the beginning of the Bible, and thank you so much, Tom, for reading that so clearly, when you go right back to the beginning of the Bible, you, you see God's original design, the way that he made the world and, and set it up, not as a scientific account, but as a, as, 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 as a spiritual account of, of who owns the world and, and who the world originates from. You go back to the beginning and and you see god making complementary pairs of things that's the account from genesis 1 so god makes light and day uh, light and darkness sorry day and night sea and dry land and then it's the pinnacle of all of this god makes man and woman have a look at genesis 1 Genesis 1, verses 26 and 27, I think it's going to come up on the screen. Here you go. Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals and over the creatures that move along the ground. So, God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. That's, what we, that's where we come from. That's our origin. And what happens next in the Bible would surprise us if it wasn't quite so familiar to us already. Because suddenly we see uh, the creation account, uh, God making people from a different camera angle. And suddenly we're in a, a, a sort of cramped garden that, that God has made for people. and. Um and they're getting married. Have a look at chapter two, verse 18. It's on your service sheets. God says he's gonna make someone for Adam, and then they get married. Chapter two, verse 18. The Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a, a helper suitable for him. Now that word for helper is not demeaning at all. It's not, it's not a sort of uh, you know, housekeeper. Um, people I grew up used to talk about uh, the lady that does, is that a thing? I don't know, That's, that, was the, that was the phrase when I was growing up. The word helper is not demeaning at all, it's, it's a word used for God um, in, the, in the book of Psalms, used of God himself. And that word suitable is literally two Hebrew words just stuck together, like opposite like, opposite, similar but different. So Eve is Adam's counterpart. And then it turns out that we're invited to their wedding. So um, have a look down at chapter two, verse 22. Chapter two, verse 22. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man. That's meant to imply equality. And he brought her to the man. The man said, breaks into poetry. You always want to worry when a man starts writing poetry. Verse 23, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman for she was taken out of man. That is why, and this is the design for getting married, a man leaves his father and mother, your relationship with your parents changes and is united to his wife, that means inseparably united, and they become one flesh. That means a physical relationship, but it means more than that as well. So far, so good. But the thing is this, as the Bible carries on, we find out that not only do Adam and Eve individually image God, but their marriage images God's plan. In other words, their sexualities are meant to tell us something about God and the plans that he has for his people. And and that is to do with how passionate God is for his people, how utterly heartbroken he is when we walk away from him and how much he longs for the final wedding day that Nathan's already described at the end of the Bible. The chief reason we have a sexuality is to help us understand God. It's a great privilege, by the way. Uh, It's something I enjoy massively, which is to be able to say weddings. And uh, many is the time that I've stood at this exact spot, you have the best seat in the house. I can't tell you, if, if you're taking a wedding, you you, you you couldn't buy it. It is the best view in the building. And uh, so what I do uh, is I just check with the bride that she's all right. Some people in this building have experienced this. Uh, and then I, I walk around to the front and I say, please stand. I try and sound as sort of serious and sort of authoritative as I can. And everyone stands up. Um, and then you see the bride starting to walk down the aisle, and then this is the this is the really good bit. Like normally, normally the bridegroom waits till the bride's about halfway down, and then he'll just turn around and take a look. And that is the most magic moment, because you see um, you see in his eyes the sort of desire that he has for his bride, and no one gets a better look than me and, and all that delight, all that delight is on display in Genesis 2.23. But all of that delight is meant to show us God's utter, utter delight over his people, his total joy over us. That the chief reason we have a sexuality is to help us understand God. passion I mean why else would um, would Jesus call himself a bridegroom in Mark chapter 2 that's the picture that Jesus uses have a look at that section of Mark chapter 2 it's up on the screen it's up on the screen now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting some people came and asked Jesus How is it that John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees are fasting, but yours are not? Jesus answered, how can the guests of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? They cannot so long as they have him with them. You know, Jesus comes as our savior in the bible and and he's going to make it very clear in the book of mark that he's going to die to save them he's going to give up his life on the cross so that they can be rescued but he it's not like he's paying a sort of one-off transaction that's going to pay the bill he he's bridegroom to the to the people he's going to be the husband of the people that he's rescued, and celebration is the, only, is, is the only rational response to that. When Jesus Christ is that committed to you. The chief reason we have a sexuality is to help us understand God. What, why else would the Bible end with this um, passionate declaration of love, this wedding between Jesus the bridegroom. And his people the church Nathan's already described that to us let's look at those verses again from Revelation chapter 19 Revelation chapter 19 verse 6 we're going to be part of a great multitude and this is what we're going to be shouting all right we might as well learn the words now hallelujah for the Lord our God Almighty reigns let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory for the wedding of the Lamb has come. That's, that's Jesus. It, takes, oh, it seems to take so long for a wedding to come around, doesn't it? The wedding of the Lamb has come and his bride, that's us, has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear. Fine linen stands for the righteous acts of God's holy people. So what am I saying? I'm, I'm, I'm saying that sex and marriage in this creation are, are a trailer for the new creation. They're an advert for that day when when all of God's love will be fulfilled. So if, if you're a lifelong single, then, then you weren't given a sexuality to torture you. Um, Ed Shaw, the guy who has the kitchen floor moments and puts it like this. This is what he says. God made us sexual beings as men and women with a desire for union precisely to tell the story of his love for us. You have a sexuality, he writes, so that God can best communicate to you the full intensity of his love. All of human history, it turns out, is just the journey up the aisle. Okay, well maybe you're thinking, um, that sounds lovely. Uh that's that's um that's good theology, but how's that meant to help me? Um you know, why can't I take my eyes off that attractive new colleague that's just turned up in the office? Um or, or if I'm not experiencing any sex at the moment, uh, maybe it's a divorced parent, person or a single parent or a never married or a widowed or even as a married person. What am I supposed to do then? Or or, or what if my sexuality feels completely out of control? I can hardly talk to a member of the opposite sex or maybe a member of the same sex without um, thinking about them sexually. How's it supposed to help me? Well, we've got two more questions to go to help us think through some of the consequences of this, but I'd love you to carry on talking about it afterwards. The first question is this. What does that mean for the way we think about marriage? What does that mean for the way we think about marriage? Well, a couple of things. Okay, see what you think of this. Let's come back to Genesis 2 and and you'll notice something interesting that in terms of the marriage that God describes right at the start of the Bible, that serving together is what is central serving together is central let me explain that so um, have a look at chapter 2 verse 5 that's in the um, that's in the service sheet now, now no shrub had yet appeared on the earth and no plant had yet sprung up for the Lord God had not sent rain on the earth and there was no one to work the ground there's no one to work the ground that seems to be an issue at this point there's no gardener okay have a look down to chapter 2 verse 15 why let me ask you this why is Adam put in the garden that's not a rhetorical question chapter 2 verse 15 someone shout out why is um why is Adam put in the garden Thank you to work it and take care of it. Okay, end of chapter T. And then um, come down with me to verse 18. They're right in the middle of the in the middle of the page. And you see, um, it, it is not good for Adam to be alone. But it's not that he's lonely. It's not good for him to be alone in this task that he's been given. Of uh, of looking after the garden. So God says, I will make a a helper suitable for him, looking after God's world. That's why um, That's why Eve's given to Adam. And then Adam breaks out into song, verse 23. That's excellent. I'm pleased with that, is a sort of paraphrase of what he says at that point. Okay? Why am I telling you all this? Well, because service is... M- is central to marriage. Yeah? Serving together is central to marriage. Uh, those of us who are married, we need to know that. that that's why God's given us a husband and a wife, so that we can serve God together. Now, marriages are meant to be outward looking, not inward looking. That is, that is the point of marriage. That the key to any relationship is whether it will help you serve God. And maybe that sounds a bit unsexy, a bit sort of unromantic. I can see that, but the sexual attraction between a man and a woman that leads them to marriage serves that aim. It's to help them serve God, It's to make it pleasurable to serve God together in the work which they've been given. Can you see? Are you convinced of that? And that, that means that it's a useful sort of counterbalance to what we saw last week in 1 Corinthians. So, so yes, 1 Corinthians says, 1 Corinthians seven. please seriously consider staying single if you can. But, Genesis 2, why might you want to ask somebody out? Why did I ask Dawn out? Well, it's, it's because I genuinely believe that together we could serve God better than we could serve him apart. I genuinely believe that together we could serve God better together than we could apart. Of course, there was all of that attraction, but that is our key role, you see, as a married couple. And so if, you know, if there's someone here at church or someone listening online um, and uh, you're thinking about asking someone out, that's a great thing. I think the local church is often the place to, to begin. To look for a look for a marriage partner, look for a life partner. And and, and if you look around, I'm I'm, you know, uh, maybe I'm the wrong person to give dating advice, but this is this is what I think the Bible's saying. If you look around at church and you identify someone who you think you could serve God together well with, then if they're a Christian, why not ask them out? And if you're the person that's being asked out, don't say, what, you and me, you must be joking. Um, maybe, maybe, why not go out together and see how it goes, see, what, see how well you can serve God together. And then if that's something that you find that God gives you, then marriage would seem a good way forward to take it. I mean, sexual attraction will serve that aim, we've said that, but it, it does radically downplay Things like um, looks and height and weight and common interest. And those are the sort of things on, on which people outside in our culture will judge a potential marriage partner. And there may well be there may well be lots that you have in common. But serving together is central. So ask yourself, principally, can I serve God alongside this man or woman? Now, that's a radical way to look at dating, I think. That's the first thing we learn about marriage, that marriage has service at its center. Here's the second thing that we learn about marriage, briefly, and that's that marriage is to be an image, not an idol. Okay, an image, not an idol. That's to say that marriage is meant to be a a picture of our final marriage to Jesus, but it's not meant to be a substitute nor will it ever manage to fulfill that role. Um, h- here's a stupid illustration, but um, just, um, just a couple of days ago, um, we gave Amy a, a print that she could stick up on her wall um, at university and it's by one of her favorite artists and it's a painting of the sea. And the reason that um, Amy loves this particular artist, who paints lots of pictures of the sea, is that she's, um, she's a great swimmer and she just loves thinking, as she's working away uh, in her in a, in a university horse of residence, she loves thinking about what it would feel like to dive into the sea. Something that feels in the dread, I get cold and then start sinking. But that's what she likes to do. But I, I told you it was a silly illustration, but I mean, if, if she got on her swimming cosy and then sort of threw herself at the wall, then she's just gonna get hurt. The pictures there to remind her, but it's not to replace the sea. It's just a picture. And and, and just occasionally, you do hear people say thing about say, say things about marriage that you can only really say of Jesus, and that's a worry, isn't it? We need to be careful uh, if we've ever thought or said things like that about marriage. You know, it happens at weddings sometimes. It even happens at Christian weddings Where people say things like, you know, when I when I, when I met John. He just completed me somehow. Only Jesus can complete us in that way. Or um, Julia, you really are. Are you the light of my life? Now we've got to be gotta be careful. I don't want to be too down and critical on people, particularly when they're in love. But you know, when people say things like, you know, when I'm with you, then everything's right with the world. Only Jesus can do that. And, wh- and what we're doing, what we're running the danger of doing is worshipping our marriage or worshipping the idea of marriage. And, and, and then we put a weight on marriage that was never designed to bear. And and that means we're going to get hurt because wrong expectations lead to demands and, and, then, and then wrong demands lead to disappointments and then... Disappointment leads to blame and we're going to get hurt. And, and, and you may have seen marriages that began as, as, as too intense, a, a, a sort of form of worship and then ultimately fell apart because that marriage couldn't take the weight that was placed upon it. No marriage can give you redemption. That ultimate sense that everything's going to be okay. Marriage can't do that for you. That's Jesus's job. Where have we got to Bible sexuality? What does it teach us about marriage that serving together is central and that marriage is an image of that final relationship between Jesus and the church. But it's not an idol. And what does that mean for singleness? More briefly, let me say Um, this is something that you might want to carry on talking about. We're going out in the park afterwards. If you want to, um, if you want to come and ask me questions, please do. We've got a question time next week, but you don't have to wait till then uh, to send in questions by email. People have been um, sending them in over the last week and I've, um, I've really appreciated every single one of them. Let me suggest two things from the Bible that single people have said and see what you think. The first one is this, that all of us need our sexuality. All of us need our sexuality. Um, when you're a surgeon, you get taught a basic lesson. This is fairly near the beginning of um, sort of surgery school, uh, sort of general surgery 101. And that's that there are some bits of your body you can do without and other bits that you can't. Okay, that's that's a key principle of surgery. Really, you don't want to remove the bits that people can't do without, and and you are allowed to remove the bits that they can. Okay, that's um, you learnt it here. Okay, Uh, tonsils, appendix, tummy button, leg, they're okay to remove. Okay, you're allowed to remove those. Uh, It's not always straightforward, but they're they're okay to go. All right, the patient's likely to wake up afterwards. lungs heart kidneys brain don't touch those all right don't take them out in their entirety or you're going to get into trouble you can imagine me in a, as an 18 year old in a lecture theater writing all this down as if uh, as if my future depended on it which it probably did okay your sexuality is something that you need you can't do without that whether you're married single or whatever all of us because it wasn't it will never be completely and perfectly fulfilled even in marriage your sexuality will never be completely fulfilled and so it keeps us longing it keeps us uncomfortable keeps us wanting more and knowing that that will only be fulfilled in Jesus Christ You, you know like Ed Shaw sometimes it will give you kitchen floor moments you might have wept tears Because of the acute pain, as as Ed put it, of not having a partner, sex, children, and the rest. But our sexuality keeps us longing, keeps us looking forwards, and we need that. And then our sexuality calls us, however imperfectly, to contentment now. You know... um, when Jesus says that he's the bread of life, I'm, I'm reading through John's Gospel with a, with a guy who wouldn't call himself a Christian. And we came to that bit this morning in John's Gospel where Jesus calls himself the bread of life. And he doesn't mean, as, as in Dawn of my favourite restaurant, uh, Le Mercury, up on Upper Street, you've probably been there, it's been going, I don't know, 30 years or something. But uh, just as you're waiting they bring you a little basket full of cut-up bits of, bits of baguette and a little pot of butter and and you sort of you might eat that just as you're starving hungry uh, but it's not the main event when Jesus says that he's the bread of life he means he has the power to truly satisfy he is what we need and that means that Jesus can satisfy in the way that that other things can't begin to now we don't experience perfect satisfaction in this world no normal finding satisfaction in Jesus make singleness a a walk in the park as if it's as if it's completely easy but it means that it is Jesus that we need to feed on day by day he is both the means and the goal to our life and our future and he will give us a satisfaction which even in this world is not perfect, but it is irreplaceable, irreplaceable. Well, there's a great big aspect of singleness that we haven't um, covered, and that's the support and friendship and, and love and functionality of a local church. We're going to come back to that next week in the last of our series, and we'll have a question time then as well please like I say do send in emails and you'll find on the back of the service sheet a box um, take home what do we want to keep thinking about from our time in Genesis 2 and Revelation do fill that in maybe just one thing that you want to take away with you one prayer that you want to pray one thing you might want to repent of and do better maybe one person you want to encourage but just as we finish we're going to pray let's pray Heavenly Father, thank you that despite some of the deep sadness and dissatisfaction that our sexuality can bring, that it does make us long for you. Thank you that it helps us understand all of the uh, the, the feeling and the passion that you have for us. Um, Thank you that it helps us see your uh, longing for us And we pray, Father, that we would echo your longing with a longing of our own, a longing for that final day when Jesus Christ is married to his church, when we can say that we have found true satisfaction. And we ask these things in his name. Amen.